So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. And please give my friend, Mr. Chris Voss, a huge round of applause. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Voss. Thank you very much. Boy, my mom would get a kick out of this. All right. Please be seated. Thank you very much. That was very kind of you. Speaking of my mom, my mom is a uh, tough, Midwestern, no-nonsense woman who says what she means and means what she says. I always like to say, what's the difference between a Midwestern mom and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. So that influence will probably come out as we go through today, this morning. All right, let me, uh, let me, let me play this video. Let's see if this works. Both carrying on a verbal love affair with the word hostage. Listen. You do not hold people hostage or engage in ransom taking to get 100% of your way. They're trying to hold veterans hostage to force Obamacare on the American people. You cannot negotiate with a hostage situation. We've got uh, a group of folks who think that they can hold uh, America hostage. The president somehow wants to keep uh, this hostage. They've taken hostages. No president should be held hostage. Holding our government hostage. Holding the U.S. hostage. Hold the entire country hostage. Hold them hostage. Don't hold anyone hostage. They took hostages. Hostage taking. Stop taking hostages. They had to take the country hostage. W whether or not it's, it's, it's correct to, to kind of use the hostage terms of, by politicians. When you see this, as somebody who's negotiated a lot, when you see what's going on in Washington, what jumps out to you? Well, uh, there's two things about that. You know, I, on a personal note, I, I like that they use the word because then it gives me a chance to be on your show. And they <laughs> 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 I, get into you know, I haven't been able to focus on anything. His company is called the Black Swan Group. That is the baddest ass name I have ever heard. I love that. Now, what is the Black Swan Group? That's like the coolest. What is that? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, a black swan is uh, something unusual that has a great impact, and we like to think that the way we negotiate has a great impact. See? All right. How often do you get a chance to tell a joke that makes Anderson Cooper laugh, right? Right, but there's a business lesson in there. There's a communication lesson in there. There's a, there's a neuroscience lesson in there. We think it is. You're up to 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Here's today's first hack. How to get smarter instantly. How to be smarter. 
how to make things happen. And also add in, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. So how do you create the conditions for something better? I don't tell that joke on Anderson Cooper. Jeffrey Tubin doesn't give me the best commercial my company ever had. The Black Swan Group, that's the baddest ass name I ever heard. How many times do you think I played that video clip? <laughs> I mean, I got to take him to dinner sometime for what he did for me. But I use humor appropriate to the moment. Here's the key issue. It's got to be appropriate to the moment. And you create magic. You create things spontaneously in the moment that might not otherwise have been created. I don't tell that joke. Then good things don't happen follow on. Now, imagine a preparation for Anderson Cooper. They're sitting there and Jeffrey Tubin says, hey, that black swan, that sounds kind of badass. I'm going to say something. I'm sure Anderson Cooper would have looked at him and said, no, you're not. We're not telling jokes here. This is not the comedy network. It's a cable news network. The producers would have gotten in his ear and said, no, 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 stick to the script. Stick to the script. But appropriate to the moment. And that's a key issue for you because a lot of you have a natural instinct that humor is important. It helps you establish relationships. You know, but as a hostage negotiator, am I going to call inside the bank and say, hey, anybody in there from Iowa? No, it's got to be appropriate to the moment. A friend of mine is a negotiator for Raytheon. Now, what is Raytheon? Raytheon is the government's arms dealers. So there's selling arms to South Korea, and the South Koreans are mad at him, mad. And they send him there to, to try to fix the deal because the relationship is breaking down. And he and another guy go, and he put him in an office building in, an, in a room that's in the middle of the building with no windows. They're trying to make them as uncomfortable as possible. They probably would have waterboarded them if they got the chance. And they're sitting in there in this room, and they're trying to work this out, and the lights go out. And so he's sitting there, and after about a minute or so, in a pitch black, he says, whose hand is that on my leg? <laughs> and the lights come on, and they laugh. And then they work things out. Humor appropriate to the moment. Interestingly enough, I'm a big fan of the rock group U2 and of them personally, not just as musicians and a Bono. And I'm reading his, uh, one of his books recently, and he's talking about, and, and as far as I'm concerned, Bono probably deserves the Nobel Peace Prize because they got literally hundreds of millions of dollars of African debt forgiven that was never going to be paid back anyway. But he's got to go around and meet with world leaders that are holding on to this debt not all of whom were nice people. He had to meet with Vladimir Putin to get Russia to forgive debt. And he found that no matter how hardcore the person was on the other side, if he could find a way to laugh with them, with them, early in the relationship, there was a really good chance they would make the deal. And he's taken a lot of heat for having pictures taken of himself with Vladimir Putin laughing. And they say, how could you laugh at this guy? He's a murderer. He's a killer. No, it was what it, about what he was trying to do. So here's the, here's the hack also. Because they wanted to see if there was a hardwire connection between the muscles in your face and the neurons in your head that get triggered to make you smarter. It's actually a neurological response. It's a chemical reaction. So they took, told people, and they said, take a pencil, hold it in your mouth, don't let your lips touch it. What are you doing? You're smiling, right? But you don't know you're smiling. And they found that people still got the uptick 
and mental capability by a forced smile. I'm, half the Lyft drivers, I live, in, uh, I live in L.A., half the Lyft drivers in L.A. think I'm a psychopath because I sit in the back of the car smiling at the mirror all the time trying to put myself in a better mood. <laughs> and you can imagine what's going through their mind, you know, serial killer in the back of the car. But if you don't naturally smile, if, and, and I do this when I'm concentrating, you know, I, I get this grim look on my face. It's interfering with my ability to think. You can intentionally override the system by forcing a smile on your face. It'll trigger the mirror neurons. If you're watching your reaction, you can actually feel that you get a small hit of, of dopamine as a result. So if you're a natural frowner, you're holding yourself back. Uh, another piece of data, and, and don't um, misunderstand the data, because the sample size is women with depression, and this is human beings. You can look at that, and if you think about it the wrong way, some people say playing basketball makes you tall. So my examples are going to be human nature examples, never mind if they're parents or their kids or their women. So women with depression, they give them Botox so they can't, uh, can't frown. And their mental ability picks up immediately just by taking away their ability to frown. So look for the little things that make a difference, that give you an edge, that continues to move you forward in your relationship with your clients and the people that you're recruiting to be your clients as you move into the position of trusted advisor, because that's your job. You are in what business? The trust business. That's the business you're in. You're in the trust business. You're dealing with people, and you guys all know this, but you're dealing with people that are in the midst of one of the biggest decisions of their lives. Buying or selling a home by anybody's lists of what are the most stressful and difficult moments in people's lives, buying and selling a home was always in the top five. So the midst of one of the most difficult periods of time in, my in their life, and that's why I'm absolutely convinced that you guys are underpaid. Full fee, every one of you should never accept anything less than full fee, ever. And based on the amount of work that you do and what you put into it and how much you hold people's hands, you're a bargain. I mean, everybody heard, everybody's heard what a finder's fee is. You know, people always want finder's fee. People want 10% finder's fee for not doing as much work as you guys do. Never, never discount. Do your job, and you will be a bargain at full fee. Never, never discount. All right, so here's one of the reasons. Also why you'll never be replaced, no matter what kind of web service is out there. How many negotiations are there in a given transaction? How many? I saw an estimation recently that no less than 25 negotiations start to end in a given transaction. That's one of the reasons why you guys are so valuable. Because they're not going to be able to do that for themselves in the midst of one of the most difficult decisions of their entire life. That's where you bring the value. That's where you're worth more than full fee. So never discount. And one of, one of our sayings in a black swan group is, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in.
I mean, that's a law of gravity. And, and I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and give into it anyway. What happens if you ignore gravity or you don't believe in gravity? Because some of these emotional intelligence rules that we've learned, we view them as laws of gravity. So I'll give you an example. Because you might not understand all of it, or some of it might be new to you. But, sir, right here, I'm going to ask you to help me, and then I'm going to ask everybody in the room to help me. I've, I've got the key to my front door in, in my house right here in my hand. I'm going to hold it out, and I want you to say, I don't believe in gravity. Louder. Everybody, I don't believe in gravity. One more time, loud. Gravity don't give a fuck what you believe. The TVMA, some mild profanity in the presentation, I didn't warn you in advance. But that'll be the only one. Gravity don't care what you believe. There's some human nature dynamics that I'm going to lay out for you guys that are laws of gravity. And at least what I ask you, because something's going to scare you. Someone's going to take you out of your comfort zone. At least experiment with it. At least tell yourself, right, so this guy Voss, his ideas are at least worthy enough for me to experiment with to see if I can make a difference in my life, to see if I can accelerate my relationships, to see if I can accelerate building trust and becoming a trust-based advisor that every one of your clients is looking for. All right, who is this guy anyway? Chris Voss, what did he do? I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. What did that mean? Any American got kidnapped anywhere in the world by a criminal or terrorist organization. It was my job, in the time I held that job, to come up with a negotiation strategy that got him out. And you might ask yourself, all right, so how busy is the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator? Well, it's a big world, and there are a lot of Americans doing stupid stuff. <laughs> so it's fairly busy. On any, on any given day, there's anywhere from one to four Americans being held someplace. And it's not, um, not an illegal detention, like North Korean government grabs somebody for hiking too close to North Korea. That's not a kidnapping. It's only criminals and terrorists. That, that kind of a thing would be State Department, I could probably have helped State Department, but, you know, they like taking care of their own business. So I was fairly busy. And what I was really was a negotiation coach. I coached negotiators globally. So I'm working a kidnapping in Haiti. And one of the first things I had to learn about kidnapping negotiations was what it was. It doesn't matter what it is to me, but what is it to the other side? And to the other side, it's a commodity exchange. We had terrorists tell us on the phone that they were commodities dealers and human being was the commodities that they dealt with. So I'm working the kidnapping in Haiti and I get a call. 12-year-old boy in Haiti has been kidnapped. Now, the, Haiti at the time before the earthquake in Haiti was a revolving door of kidnappings. And I once had uh, somebody in the media ask me how come it didn't make the paper. Well, for the principal reason is What's the rule if something gets in the media? There one of two things has to happen to make it interesting to the media. Got to have sex, or people got to die. If it bleeds, it leads. 
Well, we were cases people weren't getting killed. But still, we got a revolving door in Haiti because they're grabbing dual nationals. Most countries, if they grab Americans, most of the time it's by accident. As a general rule, grabbing an American is bad for business, and they want to be in business. If you grab an American, Uncle Sam shows up, starts pushing people around, they don't like that. So a 12-year-old boy has got his citizenship probably the same way you got yours. How, are you an American citizen? He said, yes. How did you get your citizenship? You, oh, so you weren't born here. Oh, where are you from? Canada. Canada. All right. Thank you very much. Most of the people in the room from the United States got your citizenship the same way I did. You were born here. Do you have any idea how unusual that is? I, I grew up in Iowa. I know my accent doesn't make it sound like it, but I grew up in Iowa. I was, figured I was born here. That's just a natural order of things. How many countries in the world are you a citizen of that country if you're born there? It's argued that there are only two developed nations, the U.S. and Canada, not one country in Europe. It's called right of the soil. I think the Latin is just soleil, right of the soil. We believe in that here. It's one of the reasons why I believe the United States is one of the greatest countries in the world, because of interesting things like that. You know, and, and I'm, I'm apolitical. Regardless of who the president of the United States is, there's some stuff they do that I think is smart, and there's some stuff they do that I don't think is so smart. But it's one of the things that make this uh, a great country. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking about a wall in the United States if this wasn't such a great country. As it turns out, um, it's, a, it's an idea mostly of the Americas, most of North and South America. We believe that if you're born in a country, whatever the people that got you in a position to be born there, that you deserve citizenship in that country. It's common in North and South America. So Haitian moms know that literally the best gift they give their child on their child's first birthday is the gift of American citizenship and all the rights and privileges that that, that bestows. So Haitian moms, one way or another, are finding their way onto American soil and their children are being born there. Now, the bad guys don't know they're grabbing Americans. They think they're grabbing Haitians, but in fact, they're grabbing dual nationals. And that's why this 12-year-old boy's been grabbed, and he's an American citizenship, American citizen. So back to the business model. I got to admit, I was impressed with the business model in Haiti at the time. Smart business model. Carjack a car with more than one person in it. Let one of those people go. You've just handled your marketing problem. That person's going to make notifications to your potential clients. You've got no marketing issues. You've already established a bit of a working relationship. You pre-qualified your client. They got money for a car and gas in Haiti. They got money for ransom. Now, here's the best part. What happens if you grab the one person in that family that nobody likes. <laughs> you still got a car. <laughs> You're going to get paid no matter what. Smart business model. So 12-year-old boy is an American citizen. He gets grabbed. 
His father's not a citizen, nobody else in the family is, but he knows that the U.S. government's supposed to help him. He goes to the State Department, and they say, the FBI is going to be there to help you. Now, I don't know what went through his mind, but I can imagine it's probably something like this. He probably figured about 15 minutes later, he's going to hear a, on the front door, and these guys will be there. Maybe they even got FBI hats on. But instead, about 15 minutes later, he gets a call on the phone from some guy in Washington, D.C. named Chris Voss, and he literally says to me on the phone, how you gonna help me? Now, how much time do I got before he hangs up the phone? You're me, what do you say? What do you say? By the way, you've got seven seconds, the exact same amount of time that each and every one of you have when you first encounter a potential client. Exact same amount of time. And what do you have to establish in those seven seconds? Trust. And? What you have to establish exactly the challenge I had with this father, trust and competence. Not confidence. Confidence helps. But I'd ask you this. Would you rather have a competent plumber or a confident plumber? <laughs> confident. Seven seconds, what do you say? Sir, you said close to the runway here, so I'm gonna pick on you next. You're me, what do you say? Yeah, Mike there too, ha. He said, I'm here to help you. Is that what you say to a potential client? Nice try. Intent is good. There's a difference between intent and implementation of that intent. Intent without proper implementation is worthless. Try again. <laughs> Thank you. Try again. It's perplexing, right? Why don't you hand the mic to the guy next to you? Because he's got a look on his face like he wants to answer. <laughs> Uh -oh. What do you need? What do you need? All right, so intent there is to get him talking to establish a relationship, right? What do you mean, what do I need? Would you ask a client that? What do you need? I'm here to help you. Well-intentioned things, but not quite on the right track. First of all, all right, so I'll stop picking on you guys. The reason why I knew what to say to this guy is because I'd done it wrong in the past. The first time I was in the Philippines working a kidnapping, which I'll tell you guys about in a little bit, I get walked into this room that everybody that is the heads of the government for the Philippines are there. Now, I am there at the express invitation of the American ambassador who's asked for me by my name. The um, head of the FBI in the Philippines has said, gone to the ambassador and said, we need Chris Voss. 
and we need to ask for him by name. We need to ask the director of the FBI to send Chris Voss to the Philippines. So I'm in there with that kind of a warm introduction, and that is, would be a warm referral, right? So I walk into the room, and every, the only person that's not there is the president. And the reason the president isn't there is his personal advisor is. So the head of the police, Philippine National Police, is the cabinet 11th position, and the secretary of defense is also there. President's personal advisor. And they say in some substance, how are you going to help us? And I make the mistake of trotting out my resume. FBI, Joint Terrorist Task Force, winner of the Attorney General's Award, winner of the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service, Terrorist Task Force for 14 years, now I'm teaching at Quantico, taught at Harvard, attended Scotland Yard. Not only do I teach the book at Quantico on negotiation, I wrote it. And I can tell you they were suitably unimpressed. They may as well have yawned right in my face. We got into an argument. There was a whole question of credentials, and they finally agreed to go along. We walked out afterwards, and the head of the FBI in the Philippines said, that was really dis disrespectful. They questioned your credentials. And I said, how cool is that? I'm from Iowa. I got to argue with the Secretary of Defense of an entire country. My mom would think this is cool. So what did I say to that father? Here's what I said. All right, Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnappers these days. I realize it's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnappers. Now today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love the party on Saturday night. If you do what I ask you to do and say what I want you to say when I want you to say it, we'll have your son out late Friday, early Saturday morning. He said to me, tell me what you want me to do. And we had his son out Saturday morning. Now, let's talk about what I said and more importantly, what I didn't say. And this is the first hard one for you, because I didn't try to get him to say that one magic word. What's the magic word? Yes. I didn't try to get him to say yes. Also, I didn't try to lay out my resume for him. Now, I will tell you through the course of that kidnapping, he never asked me how long I'd been an FBI agent. He never asked me how many kidnappings I worked. He never asked me how many times I've been to Haiti. You know how many times I've been to Haiti? Yeah, I've never been to Haiti. He didn't ask me how many languages you speak. He didn't ask me if you speak French, do you speak Creole. Yeah, and you might have asked yourself, this guy Chris Voss says he wore kidnappings all over the world. How many languages does he speak? And by now the answer to that is obvious, barely one. I don't need to know the industry. I need to know human nature. I know the human nature laws of gravity. I can work with you. You know your industry. You know your challenges. 
What I said to that father to lay out the challenge of what he was looking at, because after he said, how are you going to help me, his next question is, do you see what's in front of me? Yeah, I didn't make a sales pitch. Let me give you my 12-point marketing plan for release of hostages. How to get through to kidnappers, get them to pick up the phone. No, I laid out what he was faced with, because right after that, when they say, how are you going to help me, your clients say to themselves, do you have any idea what I'm looking at? And not once did that father ask me one single question about how long I'd been doing what I've been doing. Not once. You know what your clients are faced with. Unless this is the first day for you, you know what they're looking at. You know that in any given transaction, there are at least 25 negotiations. You know it's a bumpy road. You know that entering escrow does not mean that you'll close. You know that there are twists and turns all along the way. You know they're in the midst of one of the dif most difficult decisions of their entire lives. Imagine what would happen if when they talked to you, you started to lay out for them the challenges they were faced with. Also, not necessarily how to accomplish those challenges. Because I didn't tell that father how we are going to get his son out. Because the crazy thing is, as soon as you start to explain to somebody how you're going to do something, one of two things happen. They say to themselves, what do I need you for? You just told me how to do it. I can handle that on my own. Or, nah, that's not going to work. One of the things that we did with kidnappers would put them on a call schedule. We would schedule appointments for the kidnappers to call us, and they would call us on time. If I was trying to get your child out and I said to them, all right, the first thing we're going to do is schedule calls with the kidnappers, you'd be like, I don't know that you're the right person for this job. But we did. I mean, it was, it, it's really easy to get a kidnapper. You want them to call you 10? I can negotiate that. Because the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. And I know what triggers people to do stuff when what they do for me is the path to where they want to be. It's a sequencing issue. You're in a trust business. Here's how to hack the trust process. Take the word trust out and put in predictability. Predictability begins to instantly change the game. When you start laying out for your potential clients what the environment looks like, you are instantly putting predictability into the environment for them you are instantly building trust, instantly, even if they just met you. Telling people what's in front of them. Then if you start to lay it out, and when those things start to happen, because you are all in environments that you can predict with a high degree of accuracy as to what's going to happen, you know what the market velocity is where you are. You know if it's a hot market, it's a slow market. You know what's happening in your market more than they do. 
because they got to go online. They're not sure where to look for information entirely. That's your job. You're a professional. You're talking to people every day that are keeping their fingers on the pulse of the market. You know what's going on, and you know what the pitfalls are. Start to put in predictability, and you instantly become trusted. Let the word trust go and start focusing on predictability. The crazy thing that I found out since I've been out of the FBI is your buyers and sellers hit the psychological profile exactly of the parents of a kidnap victim. What does a child represent to their family who's been kidnapped? Their hopes and dreams for the future, their cherished memories of the past. What does a house represent to people? Their hopes and dreams for the future, their cherished memories of the past. How long is the kidnapping going to last? When the bad guys let them go. How long is it going to take for my house to sell? When somebody buys it. But that's not a good enough answer. How do you start to put predictability right back into the situation? I remember I, I ran across a real estate agent in Australia a few years ago, and she laid this out, and it all made sense to me instantly. Because this also goes to specifically the other thing that you guys want more of, but you have a hard time wrapping your arms around how to get it. What do you want more of? Referrals. Eighty percent of people that buy or sell a home say that they would refer their agent to somebody else, and only twenty percent of them do. What's wrong with that math? How do you affect that? And this was one thing that this woman was doing, and she had a referral pipeline that was higher than anybody else in her industry. She was putting predictability back in, and it was exactly what we used to do with parents of kidnapped victims. Schedule calls. Never let your clients wonder when they're going to hear from you. Here's what you do now: you call them when you got good news and when you have bad news. How do you know when that's going to happen? You don't. Which means, because the biggest stressor in human existence is the unknown, your clients sit in the unknown and do not know when they're going to hear from you again. Parents of kidnapped victims would sit in the unknown, not knowing when they were going to hear from a hostage negotiator again until we put the system in. And I would never, never, never let anybody wonder when they were going to hear from me again. That father in Haiti, the reason why he did everything I asked him to do. When I asked him to do it, was one of the things I said was, "You're going to hear from me in an hour." He never wondered when the phone was going to ring again. He was going to hear from me. We started managing families, and I had my hostage negotiator say, "Come what may, family members need to know when they're going to hear from you again, whether it's a day, whether it's two days, whether it's a week, because then they don't know when it's going to be over. The the anxiety and the stress floods in. But if they know that they're going to hear from you Wednesday at 10 a.m." Every single one of them is going to be all right. I'm good till Wednesday at 10. I can deal with this because I'm going to hear from my trusted advisor at a time in the future that I know it's going to happen, and it's going to be predictable for me. And I trust someone that I can predict. And this woman in Australia, no matter what, none of her clients ever wondered when they were going to hear from her or her team. Now here's the second part of this because this is a good news, bad news things. What do you always say when you have bad news? Always. How are you? <laughs> you call somebody with good news. Right away you go like, I got great news. 
You don't say how they are. You can't, you can't wait to tell them. How are you is code for, I got something I'm scared to tell you. Nobody ever says, how are you? It's a temperature check. So first of all, get out of the calling people on the phone saying, how are you? Because you're trying to dial into how they are. Call them on a, and especially if you've got no news. This is the hard part. Call when you have no news. And instead of saying, how are you? Saying, hey, look, I'm calling to check in. There's nothing new. Whatever is going on, tell them. If, you've, if there's been nobody, uh, no hits on the site, if there's no visits, if there's no schedule, whatever it is, give them whatever you got. And if you got nothing, tell them you got nothing. Now, you're going to say that makes you sound stupid. What it makes you feel to the other side is accountable. And they trust people who are accountable. You're predictable. You're going to be accountable for this process. You might not control it, but you're going to be accountable for it. And you begin to build this trust factor in very small ways. And I can remember in particular, and it's how are you thing especially, I had a hostage negotiator who was in touch with the sister of a woman who was kidnapped in the Philippines. And I remember when I finally met this woman, her name was Mary Jones. And Mary Jones, everybody was scared of Mary, scared to death of her. Mary Jones is a tough, no-nonsense chick. And I use single-syllable words like that because I'm a monosyllabic guy, right? I even had trouble saying that. So I like one-syllable words. And I finally meet Mary Jones, and she's this upbeat, positive, wonderful, vivacious, sort of pixie-ish ball of energy. And I'm like, this is the woman that everybody's scared to death of? But Mary Jones is a no-nonsense person. And my negotiator in Cincinnati says, I'm, I'm tired of calling Mary Jones on the phone and saying, how are you, and having her rip my head off. And I said, how do you think she is? Her sister's being held in the Philippines by terrorists, Al-Qaeda terrorists, who cut people's heads off and rape women. How do you think she is? When you call your client and you say, how are you, their thought is, you don't know? I'm in the midst of one of the most difficult decisions in my entire life, and either you're completely oblivious to how I am, or you don't care. There's only two options if you ask someone in a stressful situation how they are. You're dumb or you don't care. Now, you don't mean it that way. You mean it to be very well-intentioned. You're trying to be respectful. But this is what you say and what they hear. I had somebody once that I'd been in extensive conversations with about doing some marketing for my company. And we got on the phone. He said, how can I help? And I remember thinking to myself, are you really that clueless? Is it, is it possible that we've come this far? Where do I begin in explaining this to you? Just call it out. Look, I know you're under a lot of stress. I know this is hard for you. I know managing, I know selling a home is one of the most stressful things in anybody's life. I know the hopes of buying a home can be one of the biggest roller coaster rides emotionally that anybody ever goes on. You start recognizing the situation with your clients for what it is instead of saying, how are you? Show that you understand. Build trust, build predictability build accountability. Their hopes and dreams for the future are at stake. Their cherished memories of the past. Exact same psychological profile as a kidnapped victim, family member. 
And they did the same thing to us that your clients are doing. When we're not talking to them and they don't know when we're going to talk to them, you know what they would do? They would go on the Internet, do their own research, and then confront us with it. That doesn't happen to you. Because they don't know what to do. Start putting predictability back into it. One of the definitions of tra traumatic stress is that it's unrelenting. People don't know what, when it's going to be over. Now you're beginning to see the parallels here, right? When is the house going to sell? I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be over. Simply recognizing the stress for what it is makes it easier. We call it the elephant in the room. How do you deal with the elephant in the room? Do you say, there's no elephant? The people you say that to, you look at you and go, like, ah, there's an elephant there. I don't know what's wrong with you. Or you say, I don't want you to look at the elephant. Ignore the elephant. And they're going to say, eh, no, it's, uh, it's kind of there. But if there's an elephant in the room and you say, look, there's an elephant in the room. It's right there. People look at it and go like, yeah, but it's not so bad. The two-millimeter shift from the negatives, the stress, the things that you want to deny, you don't want people to pay attention to, to borrow Tony Robbins' phrase, the two-millimeter shift is simply, instead of denying it, recognizing it, calling it out. It always diminishes it, always. There's actually brain science that backs that up. What else are we going to do? I will tell you that when we follow these guidelines of schedule calls, and being willing to say, I got nothing new. We never had one single family not follow our guidance, ever. We batted a thousand with that. And if you give it some thought, you comply with people that you find to be completely accountable to be able to face the environment with you unflinchingly. That's a trusted advisor. That's how you build trust with people. So always make sure they know. They should probably hear from you about three times a week. But however many times a week they hear from you, never let them wonder when the next call's coming in. That'll make that time bearable. You got nothing new, lay it right out there. Hey, it's Tom. If you've been listening to me for a while, you've heard me say repeatedly over and over again, we are living in the review economy. That's right. Consumers are making decisions based upon reviews. With that said, I'm looking to get this podcast into the minds of more amazing people just like you. You can help. Would you go to Apple Podcasts and write a review? Tell them what you think. Hey, one star, five stars, make up your own number of stars. Totally fine by me, but please go to Apple Podcast and write a review. It means the world to me. Thanks in advance. Now, let's get back to the show. Now, this is how you deliver bad news. You simply say, again, it ain't how are you. It's like a bad news, and then you deliver the bad news. And then you can have a follow-up answer of how you're going to deal with it. One, one time when one of the kidnap victims that we were working in a case, and not everybody lived. Not every kidnapping worked out the way that I wanted it to. I had to make notifications that one of our hostages had been killed in a, in a botched rescue attempt. 
And the person that called me on the phone, I remember being woken up at 5 o'clock in the morning in D.C. He said, I've got bad news. Martin is dead. And he delivered it to me perfectly. Because when he said, I've got bad news, it gave me enough time to brace myself. And then I was kind of like, all right, I'm ready. Let me have it. And then I could handle it. And I spent the rest of the day making notifications the exact same way. You have bad news, call them on the phone and say, I have bad news. Take a breath and let them have it. They will be grateful that you told them in a way that gave them a chance to brace themselves in advance. And then lay out how you're going to handle it. Your strategy doesn't have to be perfect. You just need a strategy. That's all. They're not expecting perfection. They're expecting accountability. They're expecting a certain amount of anticipation. They're expecting action. All right. Let's get into your habit. Your addiction. Let's talk about our addiction. You didn't know it was going to be one of those meetings, right? Where I stand up and say, hi, I'm Chris. I'm addicted to yes. And you guys all go, hi, Chris. We are, we love this word. Man, do we love yes. Yes has been described as one of the most beautiful words in the English language. If not any language. And there's a story, John Lennon first fell in love with Yoko Ono. He went to this art exhibit where it was like this obstacle course thing. And you crawled under stuff and you climbed over stuff and you got to this rickety ladder and you climbed to the top of the ladder and at the top of the ladder was a telescope and you looked through it and tiny letters on a far wall was the words yes <laughs> so it's a crazy word how do we feel when we hear it but how do we feel when somebody's trying to get it out of us how do you feel when a voice on the other end of the phone says have you got a few minutes to talk yeah, what's your gut feeling no. Because most yeses are a combination of a whole bunch of questions. Have you got a few minutes to talk is simply, I'm going to ask myself, well, if I do have a few minutes to talk, do I want to talk to you? If I have a few minutes to talk and I want to talk to you, do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? There isn't a man alive that hasn't gotten a call from his significant other, and she says, can we talk? And he says, well, I know I like talking to you, but I don't think I want to talk about what you want to talk about. After that, how long is a few minutes? I get a colleague that lays out an agenda. It's going to take 45 minutes, and he wants to go through it. He always starts to, have you got a few minutes? With him, it's 45 so that's an uncertainty thing coming back in. And the next thing they ask themselves is, how do I get off the phone? How long is a few minutes? How do I get off the phone? Now, this has been taught in the past as momentum selling and the yes momentum. And the way it goes is you ask somebody a question where the answer is yes. Would you like to make more money? Would you like to have more time with your family? Would you like to live in a big house? Buy my book. All those things will happen, as a matter of fact, if you do buy my book, by the way. By the way, if you like Instagram, 
Hit me up on Instagram. I like that. It's cool. I dig it a lot. Only if you like Instagram. All right, so this yes addiction. And getting out of it is going to be hard. going to give you an idea of how uncomplicated but difficult it's going to be. Everybody make a fist with both hands. As a matter of fact, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up, please. Get your feet shoulder width apart. No, you, you don't got to jump up and down, so men or women in high heels, you don't have to take them off. 90 degrees with both arms, make a fist with both hands. Yeah, you got to put your phone down. Thank you. <laughs> right thumb up, left forefinger out. There you go. <laughs> it's hard, right? Now switch. You have two thumbs up, sir? Switch back. Ow, ow. Now, back and forth, back and forth, back. Pick it up. Quicker! Come on, quicker! All right, thank you for playing, everybody. Now, did you need to be either Elon Musk or Amal Clooney to understand what I was trying to get you to do? No. But it was awkward. Awkward is two things simultaneously for anybody over the age of 22. It's a barrier to learning. And it's also the accelerator. If you're not feeling awkward when you're learning something, you're learning at a slow pace. If you feel awkward, that focus, that concentration, and that feeling in your head was actually the feeling of the creation of a new neurosynaptic connection, which to me is, is cool. I dig that. I'm into brain health. I want to live as long as I can. I realize I probably only have about 100 years left, so I want to be as healthy as possible. So I'm always doing stuff for my brain. And the creation of a new neurosynaptic connection is what I like to do. And getting out of the yes habit into a couple of other habits is going to feel that awkward for you initially, and you'll quit. Because up to about age 22 or 23, I mean, everything's awkward, and it just goes with the territory, and we don't care. You start getting good at stuff in your mid-20s, you start not feeling awkward, and at that point in time, you don't want to do stuff when it makes you feel awkward. You quit. But we know what the learning curve looks like. The learning curve is steep initially, but as soon as you get over the top, you take off on the other side. So how long does it take to create a new habit? How many, how long does it take? Does anybody know? A lot of people, I think I've heard people, I'm hearing people say three weeks, 21 days. I listened to a, uh, a pilot, John Foley, a Blue Angel pilot, give a talk probably about two years ago. He said it took 63 to 64 repetitions to wire a new groove in your brain. That, you know, that was his term for creating a synaptic connection. 63 to 64 reps. Some of the stuff that I'm going to lay out for you, you're going to need to do 63 to 64 times, and then it'll click in. And that's what coincides with about three weeks. Because if you do things a few times each day, it takes about three weeks to work your way up to 63 or 64. But you've got to hang in there through this to create these habits. You've got to hang in there through the awkwardness. And the awkwardness is an indicator that you're learning. Now, how come I can do this? Am I a space alien? No, I practiced. I got my 63 or 64 reps in. It's a perishable skill. So normally before I come out and give a talk, I'll go in a men's room and I'll practice. So if you caught me in a men's room doing this, 
I wasn't trying to make friends. <laughs> and if you did this back, that's why I left. <laughs> but I do all this crazy stuff for neural connections. Another interesting one for those of you that might be interested in it, to good brain health, brush your teeth with your opposite hand. Now, I remember, I'm willing to admit the first time I did that, I had to move my head back and forth. <laughs> but you'll get it, 63 reps, get your reps in. So ideally, you're asking yourself, this guy Voss doesn't want me to get people to say yes, what does he want me to get him to say? We're on the right track. We're getting there. Thank you very much for the auto participation. You get a prize later. First of all, to get out of this, who's this guy? Anybody know? Jack. Jack Welch, former CEO of GE and C uh, GE in their heyday, wrote several business books, Jack and Winning. And one of the last books that he and his wife Susie wrote a couple years ago was called The Real Life MBA. And they're coming through Los Angeles, and they're at a book signing, and I'm going to go to the book signing, and I asked Jack Welch to come and speak at the class that I'm teaching at the time at USC. So, you're me. You. You're me. You're at the book signing with Jack Welch. What do you say? Hi, nice to meet you. Is that what you said? It's an honor to meet you. Awesome. Cool. All right, so not a bad start. Can you get the rest of it in seven to ten seconds? A little louder, please. I'm sorry. You've made an incredible impact on me and my book. All right, so we're, we're, we're starting to run out of time here. But this is what you're faced with, because you're trying to lay out a case. Look, treat people as if they got ADD, because they do. <laughs> On top of that, here's the logistics of a book signing with Jack Welch. There's probably two or 300 people in a the room. There's a long line. As you get close to Jack to get signed, somebody stops you. They say, what's your name? I said, it's Chris. They put on a little piece of paper. They say, we don't want Jack to get your name wrong. Well, it's also so you don't talk to Jack, right? You walk up there, he looks at it, he says, Chris, nice to see you. Signs your book, you keep going. They're doing everything they can to keep you moving. You, the amount of sentences that you've said already, if everybody in the room says that, we're here for six hours. Literally, I was at a book signing at a conference a couple, about two weeks ago. They told me in advance, from the moment somebody steps up to you to the moment they move on, including pictures, we want it to be 30 seconds because there were 300 people in line. Not only on top of that, you go through the line, I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. I'm going to get this close. They don't know who I am. I haven't been through a metal detector. I haven't provided any identification. I might be there to hurt Jack. Jane uh, Fonda was doing a book signing a few years ago, and a former Vietnam vet, when he got close enough to her, he spit right in her face. So they don't know that I'm not stalking Jack Welch. They don't know that I'm not, I don't have a gun. As a matter of fact, I have a gun, but I'm not going to hurt him. 
But I'm going to get this close to them. Action's quicker than reaction. I could do whatever I want to Jack Welch. They could make me pay for it, but they can't stop me. I get this close. I could take his face in my hands and lovingly kiss him on the lips if I wanted to. <laughs> He's wide awake. So here's what I said. I walk up. I figure I got one sentence, period. Beginning to end, close the deal. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation class that I teach at USC? And he looks at me, and then he looks up and to the left, and he gets this hideous scowl on his face. And he freezes. And I think to myself, I just killed Jack Welch. <laughs> He's not a young dude, right? You know, he looks like he had a stroke and he's going to fall over dead right in front of me. They're going to tackle me and they say, you killed Jack Welch. I'm an FBI agent. We don't care. You killed him anyway. <laughs> so initially when he doesn't die, I'm relieved. But he doesn't unfreeze. Finally, he looks at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account that we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak to your class. A calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. Because think about the succession of yeses I got out of him, not only with yes, but with the hows. Because yes is nothing without how. He gave me a stream of yeses and hows, bang, 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 as a result of the calibrated no. We have found it's astonishing what people will comfortably say no to. Because what's no? No is protection and safety. That's why people get into, you know, no mode when the only thing that comes out of their mouth is no, because it protects us. It makes us feel safe. It also makes us feel like we can continue in a conversation without making any commitment whatsoever. And consequently, since we're not making a commitment, we can keep talking. We keep collaborating. We keep interacting. Some people have told me that my book is about, really, it's not so much negotiation, but it's how do we create a collaboration? No matter what happens, how do we get on the same side to tackle the problem we're both faced with? You're in collaboration mode with your clients. They want someone they can trust to collaborate with. You're both faced with different aspects of the same problem. They're trying to sell their house. They're trying to buy the house. You want to step in there and collaborate with them to accomplish that problem. And every single thing that you do to make them feel safe and secure along the way continues to add to you being a trusted advisor and not just close this transaction, but build your referral pipeline, build your future, build your long-term reputation in the industry as somebody who gets things done and somebody who could be trusted. So the first simple thing is often being conscious of making a switch from yes to no at calibrated times, especially early on. I mean, we've, uh, Robert Herjavec, one of my favorite stories to close, like somebody once said to me, well, you still got to get a yes when you close. Robert Herjavec, Shark Tank Robert Herjavec, 
wonderful guy. For those of you who watch Shark Tank, he comes across as one of the, you know, the most, you know, the nicest guy in a Shark Tank. And in person, wonderfully generous guy. I get introduced to him, and we go to lunch just on the strength of an email. We go to lunch, and I get 90 minutes with him. And best of all, he paid. <laughs> My favorite kind of lunch. If it's free, I'll take three. We're sitting there talking, and we're getting ready to run one of our negotiation trainings in New York, and I'm going to offer um, Herzevik a ticket. Now, I don't expect him to go, but I want him to send one of his people. And again, a great, another indicator of what a decent guy is, when I offer him a free one, he says, how many can we buy? Right? It's a great sign. So we're going back and forth on how many he's going to buy, and we can't get the number nailed down. And my team is mad at me for giving anything away for free. Because we sell out, and the tickets are not cheap. They're expensive. And everyone that I give, they don't care if it's Robert Herjavec. They want his money. So they're mad at me. My son, who's my director of operation, calls me on a Monday afternoon and says, you get Herjavec to commit to those tickets right now because we're going to be sold out by the time the day starts tomorrow. And I'm in L.A., and they're in New York, which means we're three hours behind a curve. So it's 5 o'clock in L.A. You know, by, we're not even out of bed, and New York is rocking and rolling first thing in the morning, right? So I send Robert Herzevich an email at 5.04 p.m. on a Monday. When was the last time you tried to get a hard decision out of somebody after 5 o'clock on a Monday, on any day? Are you against committing to three tickets now? Second line. Is it ridiculous to ask for you to pay for them before the business day starts in New York tomorrow? I press send. I get an email back one minute later. No, we'll commit to three tickets now. No, we'll pay for them within the hour. Send in a, a link. My assistant will be in touch with you. 23 minutes later, his assistant asks for the link and they pay. It all goes down in less than 30 minutes. And the first two most important parts in less than a minute. Again, at the end of the day, which is hard, a very difficult time for us to make decisions anyway. We all suffer from something called decision fatigue. There's only so many decisions you can make in a given day. Every human being is like that. It's the real reason Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs both only wore black T-shirts and blue jeans. Because both those guys realize any given decision they make in a given day is probably worth at least $10 million. They're not going to waste $10 million on what color shirt to wear. But people can say no no matter how fatigued they are with decision fatigue. That's the cool thing about it. I had an assistant once that I said, never ask me a what or how question after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Because you ask me how I want to do something after 2, I'm already burned out. I'm, I'm going to say, I don't know. Leave me alone. Make every question you ask me a question I can answer with no, and I can give you follow-on answers instantly. This, and we don't have the brain science of that one yet. We have the brain science behind pretty much everything else that we do. And this is a law of gravity. You might not believe it works, but I'm telling you, it's going to hit the pavement one way or the other. People can answer no. You'll be shocked at what they're comfortable saying no to. And you'll also be surprised at how tired they can be, and they can still give you a quality answer and quality guidance as a follow-on. So there's, this is a two-part issue here, though. 
because there are some people that this is the only thing that they learn from us. And they, they instantly make a huge difference in their lives, which is one of the reasons why it's the only thing they learn. They get so much progress, they don't want to learn anything else. I can't imagine there's more. But there's a real critical issue because in rare, rare, rare instances, no is either going to be inadequate or it's going to break down. So what do you do to continue the trusted advisor relationship? Somebody else said this earlier. This is the word you're going, this is the response you're going for. That's right. That's right is what people say when what they have just heard is the indisputable truth. And they fully embrace what's just been said. You get little that's rights and you get big that's rights. But every instance, the other person is completely on board with you. And it's these words especially. And to be distinguished from your right. Because your right is what people say when you're making your pitch and they like you and they want you to shut up. Your right is what we tell people when we're trying to preserve the relationship. It's either somebody we have to preserve the relationship or we want to, but we want them to shut up. And you guys are all doing this anyway. Every single one of you in this past week, somebody, family member, friend, child, spouse, boss, colleague, they're hammering you on something, they're trying to talk you into something, and, you, and they just won't let up. So you look at them and you go, you're right. And they get a big happy smile on their face and they go away. <laughs> and you go back to what you were doing before and they start on you the next day because you didn't change. And they hammer, hammer, hammer. And you look at them and you go, you're right. And they leave again. You know who the greatest practitioners of your right are globally? Husbands. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. But that's right, it's what we say when what the other person has just said is the indisputable truth and we are all in. Whatever side of the political aisle you are, the last presidential election when Hillary and Donald were debating, whoever you liked, when they did that debate and they said something that you fully bought into, you didn't look at the TV and go, you're right. You looked at the TV and you went, that's right. And when somebody says that's right to you, they're telling you, that you have just built more trust with them. They feel empathy from you. The reason we use empathy is because we want empathy in return. We want trust-based influence. That's based on empathy. How do you know if you're establishing a trusted relationship with someone? How do you become that trusted advisor? In those conversations, you start going after that's right. You start repeating the situation as they see it and the critical times are often the stuff about the situation that you would rather deny or ignore. The stuff that most people say, oh, you could never say that. Let me give you an example. This is an American overseas doing stuff that he shouldn't do. This is the sociopath that has him. One of the interesting conversations is often does empathy work on a sociopath? My empathy does. Because my empathy is not sympathy or compassion. Now make no mistake, empathy is not compassion. You do not need to have compassion for someone to empathize with them. It is 
a very compassionate thing to do. You can't get to compassion without empathy. But draw the distinction between those things in your mind, and you'll find that empathy then becomes unlimited. There isn't a personal, how would you like to have a negotiation skill that you could use on every human being alive? If you define empathy, and we refer to it as tactical empathy, because we know so much about the way the brain works now, that we might as well use it because we can see inside people's heads and see how it works. Tactical empathy. So this is sociopath that's got him. This is a guy that I'm coaching. He was in the back of the room, that room I talked about earlier when they said, how are you going to help us? And he was listening in. And he's coachable. I just need you to be coachable. If you're open to being coached, I can coach you. So the demand for the American is $10 million. $10 million. $10 million. But our social past pretty sharp guy. Maybe he understands marketing. I don't know. But he's not asking for $10 million in ransom. He's asking for $10 million in war damages for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans to the atrocities committed under blackjack Pershing in the early 1900s. By the way, as a side note, do you guys know why the U.S. military carries 45 automatics? To kill this guy's grandfather. On the south of the Philippines, the U.S. Army was down there, um, and we were carrying 38s at the time, and we'd shoot these guys, and it wouldn't knock them down. They wouldn't stay down. Blackjack Pershing said something, I need, I need something with more punch. So they invented the 45 caliber to knock this guy's grandfather down. What does that mean? He comes from a history of warriors. Long history of warriors. So they're asking for $10 million in war damages from 500 years of oppression, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, to the violation of the fishing rights, to the economic harm committed over 500 years, which on a, on a pretty good idea because it makes $10 million seem like that, not that much. Now, I realize that most of you right now are turning this discussion out because you've never been in an argument with someone where they brought up stuff from the past that no longer mattered. (laughs) That doesn't happen in day-to-day life. So we're going back and forth on this for several periods, uh, several months, and not getting them off the 10 mil. Now, we got a bargaining system, which I talk about in the book. It's called the Ackerman system. It's an unbeatable system, but I got to get them bargaining to get that system started, and I can't get them out of it. So I coached my guy, and one day I said, we're going to hit the reset switch. All we're going to do, all we're going to get out of this guy, the next conversation we have, is you're going to get him to say, that's right. And you're going to sum up everything that he said, especially the stuff that makes us sound bad. And you're going to lay it on thick. Because when you're doing this, especially the stuff that makes you look bad, you're going to feel like you're laying it on too thick. And one of our sayings is, if you're not laying it on thick, you ain't laying it on thick enough. So lay it on thick and let, keep going until he says that's right. So we get on the phone with him two days later. And my guy says, you're not looking for ransom for the American, but you're looking for war damages. 
War damages for 500 years of oppression, from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, to the violation of the fishing harm, fishing rights, to the harm created under blackjack Persian, to all the atrocities that the different colonial powers have committed. And not only that, you guys aren't Filipinos anyway. You're Moros. You're in a separate, independent moral homeland that's being held hostage by a proper government held up in the Philippines right now by the latest colonial power, the Americans. All of the stuff that you might otherwise want them to ignore, deny, or dismiss, laid it all out. And after a few moments of silence, after laying it out, the sociopathic terrorist on the other end of the phone said, that's right. And he sat there in silence for a couple moments, and my guy says, let's talk again in a couple of days. And they hung up. And the $10 million disappeared in that moment. $10 million went away. The ransom demand went from $10 million to zero in that moment. The kidnapping took a couple more twists and turns. They never mentioned ransom again through the duration of the kidnapping. They brought up a couple of other non-substantive issues. We handled them with emotional intelligence. And a couple of months later, on the Thursday before Easter, on Monday, Thursday, their security had diminished around our hostage enough that on the night that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, our hostage walked away, just walked away. Local farmers saw him walking down a dirt road, said, you must be the American that's been in the media. He said, I am. They alerted the military, told him he was walking around the countryside. The military flew down, picked him up. Um, Took him back to Manila. They held this giant press conference. He sat at the presidential palace, the president of the Philippines on one side, the secretary of defense on the other. Secretary of defense said, in his daring rescue operation, we have rescued the American. They gave him a ride. <laughs> that was daring. A lift driver conducted a daring rescue operation at my house last week. Our American just sat there, you know, didn't say anything, listened to this going on. We flew him out of the Philippines. I'm back in the Philippines on another case about three weeks later. I connect back up with my guy. He says, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I said, I don't know. Who called you on the phone? The terrorist. Our guy in the sunglasses. Still knew him by his undercover name, still had his undercover phone number, called him on the phone and said this, have you been promoted? I don't know what it was that you said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. They should promote you. And he hung up. What's he saying in that moment? He's saying we're good. He's saying... If we talk again, I'll deal with you. We're good. And think about the context. He got nothing. He lost everything. And he called the guy that took it from him and said, I feel respected by you. I deal with you again. Everybody that you interact with, whether it's your personal life, whether it's your professional life, Everybody should feel so respected at the end of the interaction 
no matter how it went, that they say to you, we're good. I deal with you again. We're, we're okay. That's the way you should leave everybody at all times. You leave people like that, and you will be the trusted advisor to client after client, to friends, to colleagues, to family members, to everybody. Everybody in your world deserves to feel that respected by you without necessarily agreed with. Fine, fine line that makes a difference in every single interaction you have. All right, short commercial before I show you a video. We, uh, my company puts out a newsletter. It's a good price. It's free. Remember, if it's free, I'll take three. There's a text to sign up function there. Make sure that you uh, text it exactly. FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space in. If you're outside of the United States, please go to our website, blackswanltd.com. Find our blog. You can sign up there. The, the newsletter comes out every Tuesday morning. It's a short, sweet, concise newsletter. A lot of people get a long, 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 long way with the book and the newsletter only. We got a f quite a bit of content we put out there for free. The newsletter is part of it. It's a concise article. It's not one of those newsletters that give you so many choices you don't know what to read. One article a week. Actionable, usable advice. Please use our free stuff as much as you can. You will get a long way with that. There's other stuff that we charge a lot for. If you decide it's worth it for you in your, in your world, then we'll go there. But in the meantime, take as much as you possibly can from us for free, please. All right, so I'm getting ready to show you a video on preparation. You might imagine that some of this requires preparation. Everybody knows that preparation correlates very strongly with success. So it's a very important, very cerebral very intellectual video on the value of preparation. A proof of life video, that's what they're called, the ultimate good news, bad news story, if you're ever unfortunate enough to see one. Today, high, today's high-stakes rescue mission in Columbia ended a drama that has been dragging on for years. Chris Voss is the former FBI lead international kidnapping negotiator, and he worked on the... So in terms of preparation here, what are my preparation issues? Might be a little hard to see. Hair on the side of my head up here is sticking out. That's the first time I was ever on CNN. I thought it was cool. I mean, uh, and I got to be on Anderson Cooper first time, let alone be on CNN. I'm excited. I'm from Iowa. There are more people in the, they're going to watch this show than are in my hometown. I get questions. There's stuff I want to know. Have they never done this before? Like I'd heard they have a green room. Do they have a green room? And is it green? Because if you're from Iowa and you've got a room in your house called a green room, that baby's going to be green. We're practical. So I, I, I go there, they got a green room, it's not green. Okay, at least now I know. And then after the green room, you know where you go after that? Makeup. And this is the first time anybody had ever put makeup on my face. And I remember sitting in that makeup chair, that pretty ladies putting makeup on my face, and I was thinking, my father's rolling over in his grave right now. <laughs> Never thought his son would be wearing makeup. 
So then after makeup, the next place you go is where they're going to shoot, they're going to video, and it's actually you're not in a studio with Anderson. You're in a large, a room that's a large, dark closet. They got a light shines right in your eyes. You look at the light. They say, right there, look at the light. That's talking to Anderson. And down to the left is a, is a monitor. And they say, the monitor is going to go live when we go live. You could be able to see the programming. Do you want that off or on? I said, leave it on. I never saw me on CNN before. I want to watch me on CNN. Leave that baby on. So we've just gone live, and I'm looking down at the monitor, and I can see that my hair is sticking out. <laughs> and I am perplexed. And the worst part is, the monitor's a mirror image. I don't know which side of my head the hair is sticking out. <laughs> But I'm a negotiator. I operate under pressure. I generate options. I can figure this thing out. So the first thing I got to do is kind of isolate the problem. This case from the beginning until his retirement just last year. He joins me now. Chris, this has got to be kind of. For some reason, I thought moving my head around was going to help. Maybe it'll wave in a breeze or something, right? And I could feel it. But that didn't work. So now, what do I got to do? You know, what are my options here? I'm like, if I go two handed, it probably, you know. I look like one of the Three Stooges. I probably can't lick my hand. That would look bad. I got to figure out. I got to deal with this. A, a remarkable day for you to be so. Anderson Cooper's hair is perfect. That's not fair. I, I guarantee you, the producer went, "Hey, hey, hey! Let's go split screen. Let's make sure everybody sees how bad Voss's hair is." So now I'm trying to decide. I'm feeling the pressure. It's like that kid's jump rope game with the two jump ropes, the double dutch. You know, when do you go in? When do you get in? How do you make your move? I got to make my move. My mom's watching. People are going to call my mom on the phone and say, "Your son doesn't know how to comb his hair. What's the matter with him?" So I got to make my move. Closely involved in this, and to finally. Damn it! See it come to fruition. <laughs> What's the point? The point is this: they didn't, you know, they didn't ban me from CNN. I finished the interview. They asked me back for other interviews. You'll make mistakes. With the people that you deal with, focus on articulating what they're worried about to them, laying out the landscape that they're faced with to them, calling out the stuff that you might otherwise deny, treating them with respect, hearing them out. Leave everybody with the feeling. That they deal with you again, and you can make those mistakes. People will always say to you, "I'll deal with you again. We're good. You'll build the referral pipeline. You'll be the trusted advisor that they need you to be." If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com/podcast. That's tomferry.com/podcast. Thanks again, and talk to you soon.